I talk a lot about serendipity as being a mix of opportunity, which this was, plus action, which I took. And I think in people's careers, this often happens. And if you keep an eye out for it, you know, sometimes you'll have the chance to do something to make a switch you've been thinking about or to experiment. And you don't need to do it every time, but to maybe just keep your mind open and see when these things occur. From Women's Health Australia, this is Uninterrupted, a podcast where we share honest and inspiring conversations so that you can live a more empowered life. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Gebilagin. We're in the midst of what's been called the Great Resignation, a time when an unprecedented number of people are leaving jobs they've unhappily put up with for years to pursue careers they've always wanted. Living through a pandemic has that kind of effect. But what if you didn't have to quit your job to turn your work life around? Today's guest suggests exactly that, and she has a wealth of experience to back up her advice. Elisa Knox has headed up sales for the APAC regions of Google, Twitter, and Cloudflare. In 2020, she was named APAC IT Woman of the Year, and this year released a book called Don't Quit Your Day Job, in which she shares what she's learned over the past 40 years. In this episode, she talks about how leaving a job prematurely won't fix your problems and can lead to you facing the same issues once again in a new role. She explains how job crafting in your current role can bring major gains, plus other mindset shifts that helped her build a successful career. The title of your book, Don't Quit Your Day Job, seems to be going against the tide with the great resignation. And I was curious, why was it important to you to convey a different message? And why do you think now is the right time? The main title, Don't Quit Your Day Job, does seem to go against the tide, I guess, or against the zeitgeist. But if you read the subtitle, which is Six Mind Shifts to Rise and Thrive at Work, the book is really about not having to quit your day job. The message isn't never quit. But I often find that people are quitting, maybe not for the right reasons. And so it's it's really not don't ever resign, but more that you don't have to. And I think the timing is right now because a lot of people are thinking about moving jobs. Um, we're in the middle of the great resignation, the great reshuffle, the great reprioritization. And actually, what it seems is that people who have resigned, many of them aren't finding the new gig all that much better. A lot of people are finding the roles are a poor fit or the frustrations of their previous jobs exist in the new ones too. Almost 5% of people who left in 2021 have gone back to their old jobs, according to a survey by LinkedIn. So I think that the timing is right in the sense that I think my career lessons can help people think about what they really want out of their career and life and determine whether it's their job that's an issue or whether they like their job and their company, but maybe they need to change the way they're thinking or the way they're managing their life and their work in order to get what they want. And Mm. the reason I wrote the book is because I spend a lot of time mentoring, talking to people who come to me because I'm older, because I'm a woman in tech, because I have curly hair, I'm not sure why. (laughs) And what I learned from tech, the one thing I learned from tech is you have to be scalable to succeed. And having coffee all day is not scalable for two major reasons. One is there's only 24 hours in a day, except for those days when you fly from Sydney or Singapore to the US. And then, you know, that's great. You get a few more hours, but you're robbed on the way back. And I don't even like coffee. So, you know, doing this all the time 
isn't sustainable. And I thought maybe if I wrote it all down and could share it with people, if they get a nugget now that they can use and maybe something that they store away and comes up in 10 weeks or 10 years or 10 months, that'll be great. And I'll have given back a little bit. And then the profits, the author profits from the book are going to Vital Voices, which is a group that uh, helps to get women in positions of leadership and power in order to make female-friendly policy decisions. And so that's another way of giving back. So that's why the book. There are a few things that I want to go back to that you mentioned there, but one in particular was about that LinkedIn survey of those who quit their jobs ended up going back to their old jobs. Kind of like that realization that, hey, maybe it wasn't the job, maybe it was me. It kind of sounds like, you know, with relationships, you know, running from different relationships, running from different jobs and discovering that maybe there was something internally that you needed to work on. And in your book, you talk about having stamina in a role and not quitting prematurely. And especially when you come across setbacks or disappointments, how do you know when it's actually time to leave a job or time to try something different? So you raise a couple points in what you just asked. One is about what you expect from your job. And I just want to come to that first, because I've written this chapter about nurturing your career because you're in a relationship with it. And frankly, because most of us start working right after university, if you're not married by then or in a relationship or partnership, then it means probably you're in a relationship with your career longer than you're in a relationship with another person. And somehow, even though there's a lot of literature on not expecting this one other person to fulfill all your needs, that you often would crater a relationship if you expected to get all your needs filled by this partner, this other person, I feel like we've gotten to a point where we expect that of our careers. When I started working I think at least my knowledge at the time, I'm not sure about the literature, was just, hey, I'm working to pay the rent and eat and travel and whatever things I like to do. And then, of course, you know, you learn that jobs can be rewarding and fulfilling and even fun, and that's great. And I think they should be most of the time, all those things. And then a lot of companies set out to say, well, look, we have a mission that benefits the world, and you might want to join us for that. So Google is sharing all the world's information. Of course, a lot of nonprofits for a long time have had very, very meaningful missions like keeping children alive. And then somehow we started talking about careers fulfilling all your passions. Mm. And I think that's terrific if you find a career that does that. But for a lot of people, I'm not sure that's possible. And maybe that expectation is too high a bar. And so when you move because you think that the next job is going to fulfill everything for you, my guess is most of the time you're going to be disappointed. And so that's why I think that some of this shifting has led to people going back because it's often not possible for all your passions to be fulfilled by your career. Mm. So in answer to your other question about when is it time to quit, I think there are a number of circumstances in which you might want to change I think the most important thing is to be thinking about going to something you really want as opposed to leaving something you don't like. Obviously, if you're in a situation where there is something untenable or whether there's harassment or bullying, things that should be taken up with HR and legal experts and you need to leave, you know that's, that's a certain set of circumstances. But if you're feeling unhappy in your job, there are a number of things you can do. I talk in the book about job dating which is kind of a sexier name for informational interviewing. 
which is a way to see what's out there and see if there's really something better. I talk about job crafting, which is a way to see if you can make, if you like the company and you like where you are, but you don't like the particular role right now and you feel stuck, are there ways you can improve the role so that you can stay? If all of those things fail and or if in the job dating or through uh, a call or a connection, you've found a job that's amazing, gives you growth, gives you more opportunity, then I think it's time to go. You know, you should go to something you really want and you should always be thinking about I'm going to something as opposed to I'm leaving something. That's a really good distinction to make because I feel like for me personally, there have been jobs in the past where it's definitely been, I'm leaving this job, I'm out of here rather than what you were saying, having going to something. Right. And I think it's possible you can have that situation, but that's where you probably need some stamina to hang in there until you find the thing you really want so that you don't end up just in another job that you don't like. Well, let's talk about stamina since you brought it up, because you talk about that a lot in your book. And could you explain what you mean to our listeners? I think stamina has a a meaning that we tend to think of as grinding it out or hanging in there. And it definitely has that element. I think of it as an equation of perseverance plus enthusiasm. So not just grinding it out, because I think that's that's kind of soul-destroying, but hanging in there with optimism, with the idea that most of the time it's going to get better, because most of the time it does. So again, I don't think that means years and years of gritting your teeth and staying in something you don't like. But there are always going to be ups and downs. People are in companies where there are takeovers or you've gone for a manager you like and there's a reorganization or your company's stock is down like so many companies today and you think, gosh, times are going to be hard. Mm. So you could say, okay, I'm going to leave. But again, that's leaving to leave, not because you have something better. And oftentimes staying through is a great experience. So in the book, I talk about a woman named Barbara, which is not her real name whom I met uh, when I was in tech, who was in a youngish tech company. And she was pretty young. She was in her late 20s. And because it was small, she had been the head of sales. And I happened to meet her and she was saying, well, I, I've got to leave because they're bringing in a new head of sales. And you know, they're bringing in this guy over me and that's demeaning and demoralizing and I'm going to go somewhere else. And I happened to know the guy they were bringing in. And I said, you know, this guy is really a great leader. He has a lot of skills. He really is focused on developing people. And I wonder if it would be worth your staying for a little while just to see what you think. You know, you can always go, right? It's not like you can't leave later. And I don't think you should take it as a criticism of you not being a good leader. I think you should take it as a reflection that the company is growing. It's getting bigger. It probably needs some people who've got additional skills to what you've been able to build by now, and you might learn something from him. And I'm sure not just because of me, but she stayed. She got promoted twice under him. Um, He really helped develop her. She liked him. One of the promotions was while she was on maternity leave, which shouldn't be anything to talk about, but I think in today's world, it still is. It's not that common. Yeah, it isn't at all. They, They built a great relationship. She did eventually leave the company, Um, And I think two moves later, she's a chief revenue officer in a mid-sized startup. 
um, actually, I wouldn't call it a startup anymore. It's a pretty big company. And my view is that she might not be in today's role, which is a really significant role, if she hadn't stayed. I think she learned a lot from the person who layered her over. Mm. So there's a case where stamina really helped her in her career. It got her through a point where she thought she was being, I guess, criticized or demeaned, and she really wasn't. And she was able to build a relationship, learn a lot, develop herself, and I think accelerate her career faster than she would have if she'd left. That is, that reminds me of a great quote in your book where you write, a rejection or failure generally won't determine how you do in the long run, but your manner of dealing with it does. It's all about the perception because she could have taken that as a massive rejection like, like you said, this could have been the turning point for her career. I think that's right. And I, she, she did initially take it as a rejection. And I think we can talk later about mentors and boards of directors, but I think having some people outside of her company and her role who could help add some perspective may have helped her get through that. Now, I want to talk about your career because you have a very impressive bio. You've headed up the APAC regions of Google and Twitter. And most people would assume that an author of a book on career advice would have had quite a direct career path. But you say that wasn't the case at all. So I was wondering if you could share with our audience how you ended up in this position where you're able to share your knowledge of career success. Sure. Let me just correct one thing. I ran part of Google APAC, the um, online sales and operations, and then I ran Twitter and Cloudflare for all of APAC. Okay. So um, just don't want to overstate. I, I had to work my had to work my way up. So there is still you know movement there. But yeah, I would say I have had what I have heard to be called a nonlinear career, or as two women in England have written a book about, a squiggly career. And I think that's much more common now. If you read all the statistics, I think in Australia, people over 45 have stayed in a job an average of seven years. People in their 20s are staying an average of two years. People are going to change jobs more often. And of course, we can both talk about industries that didn't exist when we got out of university. So I would have never known I could work at Google or Twitter or Twitter because they weren't around. Um, the internet as a business platform didn't exist. Similarly, People who started their careers maybe 10 or 12 years ago didn't know about crypto, didn't know about AI, didn't know about precision medicine. So I think it's going to be more and more common that people start in one place and end up someplace else. So for me, there are a couple things that are important. One is we talked about making room in your career for things you really care about. So this is going to sound ridiculous, but when I graduated from college, I moved to New York because I was living on the East Coast of the U.S., and that's what a lot of people did, and it seemed great. It's a great city. I took a job at a bank where I was in a training program. So I had just finished university studying, and I was basically studying eight hours a day in this bank training program. I really needed some kind of physical release at the time. All I knew how to do was swim. You know, I've since learned some other sports. And uh, there was no place in Manhattan to swim. There were lots of these like large mug-sized tiny pools to show off your body at the health and racket club after you'd done aerobics. <laughs> and there was one big mm. pool at the downtown athletic club with a quota on people under 25. Which So I couldn't, you know, I couldn't swim at the former and I couldn't get into the latter. And then New York University built a brand new gymnasium 
two blocks from where I was living in the village in New York. Perfect. Except you had to go to school to get into this pool. So that would mean that even though I just finished studying and I was studying eight hours a day for work, I would have to study some more to use this swimming pool. I applied for an MBA along with another friend, got in, we started studying. We said, oh, you know, we're just going to do this for a few months so that we can swim or she used the gym and then, (laughs) you know, we're going to go to business school somewhere else, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we both ended up doing our MBAs at night, which of course meant either less sleep or less social life. So it wasn't ideal apartments that smelled like chlorine, but we got the MBAs, the bank paid for it, which was terrific. And when I decided that I wanted to move to Australia about a year later, because I really wanted to live overseas and I didn't have great language skills and I'd spent six months in England and during college, it was fun, but it was rainy and cold and the vegetables were soggy. So Australia seemed like the ideal place. That MBA really helped me. People said, oh, uh, you could work in a consulting firm. And I said, well, what's a consulting firm? So they told me about McKinsey and BCG, and I applied to these firms. And because I had an MBA, I was able to get a job. And in fact, the longest single stint in my career has been 13 years at the Boston Consulting Group, which I love. Hmm. So I know it sounds crazy, but I did this thing for me personally, because it mattered to be able to let off steam and exercise. And it ended up helping my career. A really second important point about my career, which is probably even more relevant to people, is that when I was at Visa, so the first part of my career, which I call Elisa 1.0, my software release one, was consulting and financial services. Then there was 2.0, which was tech. I'm now in 3.0, which is writing and sitting on boards. But to get to 2.0, you know, how did that happen? Well, when I was at Visa, a financial services company, we were trying to do a deal with Google. I was living in the Bay Area. Uh, it was the 2000 knots. And we, we, Visa and Google were trying to work together. I met Vin Cerf, who is one of the real founders of the internet, one of the original builders, who is still an evangelist at Google. And we worked on something at this meeting. And I wrote a thank you note from my Visa email. And we continued to work on this project. And then I thought about this for a couple of weeks. You know, would it be appropriate to write him an email around the side? Would that be too audacious? Would I get in trouble? I was in San Francisco watching the internet, which had boomed and gone bust. You know, we'd already had the dot-com boom and bust, the first one, but was coming back again. And I thought, wow, there is really a lot going on in this industry and I'm totally missing out. And so I wrote Vinsurf an email from my personal email and said, look, you know, if this is too audacious, you can just ignore me, but would you be able to tell me whether Google or another online media company or internet company might be interested in somebody like me? And, you know, might I ask you to to discuss this with me? And that led to discussions with Google and my eventually going to Google and being in the world of tech for 15 years. And so I consider that serendipity, and I think there's a lot of that in our careers. So it's not serendipity like Kate Moss being discovered in an airport to be a model, someone just coming up and saying, hey, you should be a model and becoming rich and famous. (laughs) I'm still waiting for that. But it's serendipity in the sense that I met somebody I didn't expect to meet. They were in a position where I could ask a question, and I could decide whether to do something about it or not. And I think there's been lots of times when I haven't done something about it or haven't maybe even realized the opportunity. 
And so I talk a lot about serendipity as being a mix of opportunity, which this was, plus action, which I took. And I think in people's careers, this often happens. And if you keep an eye out for it, you know, sometimes you'll have the chance to do something to make a switch you've been thinking about or to experiment. And you don't need to do it every time, but to maybe just keep your mind open and see when these things occur. And what's the worst that could have happened? Probably the worst is that he didn't answer. Maybe the very worst is that he writes me an email saying, wow, I really think that was inappropriate and I hope you don't do it again. I guess he could have called Visa and said, do you know this woman is thinking about possibly leaving someday? I just can't imagine he would have done that. So I think people can take these opportunities and shift where they're going and pivot. So that's why I think careers become more squiggly and there's lots of opportunities for people to change. You mentioned job crafting earlier. Can you talk more about that and explain what you mean? Yeah, sure. There's a lot written on job crafting right now. I'm not the complete expert, but it's basically a way of describing times when employees utilize the opportunity to customize their jobs by actively changing their tasks and their interactions. So again, in the book, there's a story of a guy, fake name, Tim Liu, who was at a company he liked, with a manager he liked, in a geography that he liked. So he really didn't want to move, but he felt pretty stuck. He'd been doing the same job for a long time. And he wanted a promotion, but that wasn't available yet. So he wanted something to kind of do in the meantime. And he had done some job dating outside and thought, you know what? I don't like any of these other roles as much as I like where I am, but what can I do? So he went to his manager and explained this and said, I really want to stay. And I think a lot of managers are empathetic to that. They don't want good employees to quit. And especially right now, when retaining employees is so important, I think managers are even more open to this. And he said, look, you know, here are some things I really want to learn. I want to learn about government relations. Our company is heavily regulated, and I don't really understand how we work with the regulators to make sure that we're compliant and also getting to do the things we need to do to innovate. And I also really want to understand more about business development, how we bring on new partners. And so together, Tim Liu and his boss figured out some projects he could do, some people he could interact with at the company to learn and get some different responsibilities while he stayed in his existing role. And he stayed at that company. And eventually he did get the promotion he was seeking, but it took some time. And in the meantime, this job crafting kept him feeling fulfilled and rewarded and like he was learning and helped him to grow while he was still in the same job. Yeah, this is great. This is something that I also do with my with my team, at, uh, just making sure like just asking them if there was anything they want to learn or anything that was, they think any kind of um, skills that would help them in jobs in the future, just just so that you can stay interested. And I learned that luckily from an old editor that I used to work with who the job that was on offer wasn't was something that I'd done so many times before and wasn't that interested she tweaked it for me so that it ended up being that I was doing video producing as well and yeah so I loved that she did that with all her staff and I found that it also created a really good culture I guess because people are happier when they're not stagnant or not feeling stagnant? Well, interestingly, I mean, first of all, she sounds like a great manager, and I think all great managers will be be doing that. But I 
think if you read what's going on in the Great Reshuffle, Great Resignation, I think Australia hasn't had as many people just leaving the workforce, but there are a lot of people changing jobs. Although there's a lot of talk about getting higher pay and more flexibility, and I think those are both real and will need to be accommodated in some way, in various ways for different people, the main reason for leaving and again for joining still relates to how people perceive their managers and their companies to be invested in them. The studies show it's, you know, I want my manager to value me. I want the company to recognize me. And what your manager did in giving you the video producing and listening to you, that showed that she recognized your talents and valued them and was willing to tweak things to enable you to grow on the job. And I think that's really, really important. Now, there's another story I really love in your book, which is about a woman who you mentored, who thought that she had to choose between a big job and having a family. And I think this is an important subject to talk about because no matter how far we've come with women's rights, I think there's still so far to go as I think women are primarily still the main caregivers. How do you design a life that allows you to do both? And it's so I just have to say it's shit that we're still asking this question now and it's 2022, but it's an important question to ask because I was in the same same situation. I know colleagues and friends who were also in the same question, uh, same situations. I'm thinking there are people listening who are also in similar situations who just want to know how do we design a life that allows us to do both? Well, I think there's no easy solution. And there are a couple stories in the book about it. The story you're referring to is about Susie Nicoletti. She's public in the book or, you know, she stayed in and she is in Australia. You can look her up. She ran Twitter, Australia, New Zealand. And now she's gone to a startup called Yachtpo and she's running APAC for them out of Sydney. And she's a great example of someone who originally thought she couldn't have kids and have a big career. Um, and I convinced her to try. I'd been mentoring her for some time, working with her for some time, and I actually wanted her to come work for me. So to get her to do that, I had to persuade her that it was possible to do both. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, since that time, that was to get her to come from Google to Twitter. And since that time, she um, rose from a sales role at Twitter to running all of Twitter, Australia, New Zealand, and has had three children. Um, so she did prove to herself and others that it was possible. I think there are always trade-offs. Obviously, you're not home full-time with your kids. Um, I think people who want to do that, it's fine to step out of the workforce. I think for people like me, I need adult company. I'm pretty sure my kids turned out better than they might have if I were home all day. <laughs> not, you know. Um, I think you make trade-offs in how you spend your money in terms of getting help with childcare, whether that's a nursery or um, childcare at home, or sometimes a partner who will step up more for, for childcare. So I don't think there's one solution, but I do think more and more people are doing it. I think one good thing that's come out of the pandemic is the flexibility so that people don't feel as awkward about I'm coming in late or I'm leaving early or I'm working from home on Friday. And one thing that's in some ways harder, but I think people are more open to, is setting boundaries. So one of the things that happened during COVID was we didn't have this, we used to sort of say, oh, well, maybe I won't bother them, they're home. 
But now everybody was home all the time. So I think some of that went away and work kind of oozed in like, to this time soup. It's like, well, they're always at home. So it doesn't matter if I bother them at home, if it's 10 at night or six in the morning and work became kind of 24 seven. So now I think there's a lot of ability for people to come back and say, I'm setting boundaries. I mean, if you look at it, you know, a few countries, Germany, Italy, and Portugal, I think, have all actually legislated that there are times you can't bother employees, send emails or ask for meetings. Uh, I don't know that Australia is going to go there, but I think it has made it more possible. And there's another young mother in the book, Peruse, who talks about coming back from her second maternity leave to the firm that she's in and saying and setting boundaries around when she would take calls. You know, she worked with her assistant to do that and explaining to everybody that that's what she's doing. And even though she's a partner, which is the highest position you can have, and people expect her to be on all the time or go, 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 she has been able to say, here are my boundaries, and these are times I'm just not going to be available. And in addition, she's written um, a plan for the first 100 days back on the job for new parents to help this firm that she works at make it possible for all new parents to kind of come back after whenever their maternity and paternity leaves are and ease back in and set some boundaries. So I don't think, you know, there's no silver bullet, but I think it's possible. I think it's possibly more possible than it used to be, but there are adjustments around childcare, how much time and money you want to spend. And I think this kind of newer ability to set more boundaries. I think that's a very important point because I was chatting to someone in my industry earlier this year who had gone back to work three days a week after being on maternity leave, but she found that she was still expected to do the same amount of work that she was doing five days just in those three days. And like the example you you just told us then, she was going to talk to HR about how setting up those boundaries so that this won't be the case for other women when they're coming back from maternity leave in the future. That's an interesting one. I think there she probably needs help to also quantify or describe what is the output of her work expected to be. When I first became a mother and was at BCG, there was a discussion that people who had gone part-time were still actually being expected to do full-time output because nobody really knew what it meant to be part-time. And so, and that has really changed since at Boston Consulting where they have clear ideas of what it means if you work part-time. But I think all firms need to do that because you're right. Otherwise they just say, it's just saying, okay, double your productivity when you're on. And that's, that's probably not tenable. I think you have to have a clear description of what, what is my output when I am working 60%. Yeah. And I guess too, something that people, women need to consider is the place that they're working at and if they are flexible, because I remember when I was pregnant, I was chatting to another company about, they didn't know I was pregnant at the time about going on, um, about a job there, but I just knew from, from people I'd spoken to that that company wasn't very friendly towards parents. So that was a major thing to me for me. So I was like, uh-uh, I can't do this. Whereas when this role came up, um, I knew that the owners were quite supportive, supportive of being flexible. I was like, yeah, I can be editor and have a full month old baby. <laughs> Let's give this a go. I think that's great. I, yeah, I, I think there's pressure on most companies to be more flexible and to allow employees to set boundaries. But I think what you're describing is really important. What you did was you went to this job 
right? Going to as opposed to leaving. And you explore, does it have the things that I need right now? You know, maybe some people mm. need a job where they can travel. That's what they want to do. And you've probably seen um, Meta, you know, which used to be, or part of it at least is Facebook, has said people can work for a month from anywhere in the world. They go at their own expense, but they can, it can still be working, not vacation, and use the office there. So that's a really good flex set of flexibility around people who really want to be able to have geographic movement. You explored, here's something I really want in my career, which is to have the flexibility to manage being a new mom and you know the work that I do. And you found a company that could do that. So I think that's really a great thing that you're describing, the way you were specific and clear about what you needed and found that in your role. Now, when we talk about success, you write that to be successful, you don't have to take that cutthroat approach that I think is so stereotypical when you think about rising up the career ladder. So what was it like for you in your career and how did you come to that realization that it doesn't have to be all cutthroat? I guess I never thought it was all cutthroat and I still don't think it is. But when, once you start working and get inside organizations, you see that some people behave in certain ways and some people don't, right? And so I think it's possible to rise to the top without, I don't know if I'd consider it completely cutthroat, but at least without spending a lot of time focusing on other people. And there are certainly people who I would consider to be not very nice, maybe even jerks who have gotten to the top of corporations. They've got very clear personal goals and they go after them. And maybe if they step on a few people along the way, that doesn't bother them. And that's fine. But I think there are plenty of people who have risen who are not like that. And for my personal style and wanting to rise and thrive, that's important to me. It's what I needed to enjoy my life and my career. And as I said, with the great reshuffle or great reprioritization now, there's a lot more emphasis on empathy. And I think you'll see that there are more and more people rising who do succeed by sort of being their best selves, if you will, who do exhibit the attributes we ascribe to a good person, a colleague, a friend, being reliable and trustworthy, encouraging others, also making time for themselves and showing that to their employees so that employees feel they can do that too. So that's just my perspective that it doesn't have to be a zero sum game. And I think you can see, you know, I can't really call out names of either, but I think in many companies you can see role models of both. And I think interestingly, um, because empathy and EQ is being called out as being more and more important, then the people who focus on that and who focus on connecting with their colleagues and their managers and their peers are probably doing even better. And there are good reasons to do that besides just, well, I like people and I want to be a good person. If you collaborate well, you can get more done across both geographic and vertical boundaries in your company. If you build trust and empathy, you're probably more likely to end up with mentors and sponsors who advocate for you at work. So I think there are benefits to sort of being a nice person, as you called it, that help you rise and thrive in addition to just helping you probably enjoy your life a bit more. For my last question, I wanted to ask you, throughout your book, one thing that really comes through is the importance of mentors, both having a mentor and being one. So what are the qualities in a relationship that make a good mentor-mentee relationship? I think mentor-mentee relationships develop over time. 
And a lot of it is around trust and empathy, the two things that I just mentioned. So if we go back to Susie Nicoletti, I met her in 2008 when I was at Google and first traveled to Sydney to introduce myself to the Australian team. And there was a young American woman there who turned out to be Susie, who was very bright and energetic. We immediately bonded on a conversation over swimming. You know, it's kind of impossible not to talk about water in Sydney. And Susie had been a competitive swimmer. I'm an avid swimmer and I did a bit of synchronized swimming, which is always, you know, surprising to people. I think I'm the only person who paid, my husband says I'm the only person who paid for tickets to synchronized swimming when the Olympics were in Sydney. (laughs) And, you know, we talked about our favorite American foods and things we needed to bring back. She brings in stovetop stuffing for Thanksgiving. I bring in Diet Dr. Pepper, although now you can get it in Sydney. And these kind of conversations, they start revealing the human side of you. And over time, we just started to get to know each other. And Susie felt like I was approachable enough that she would occasionally check in and update me about her career goals. And I sort of gradually became a mentor. And then, you know, when I went to Twitter and I wanted to hire somebody, I reached out to her, uh, which is how we got to that conversation about kids and work. And so I think a lot of these mentor relationships develop gradually. I think not everybody ends up with a lifelong mentor or even a long-term one, especially outside of work, because there has to be chemistry. You have to have the serendipity to meet someone and you can't force it. Some companies assign mentors. And I think that's good for kind of a buddy relationship or somebody who might help you a bit inside work. It's not the same kind of mentoring. I think that I ended up with, with Susie as an example. So I think there are alternatives as well. Um, It's great if you find some mentor relationships. I think mentors give advice. I don't think mentors necessarily pull you up at work, especially if they're not at your workplace. So something you do need at your job is an advocate or a supporter. They might be a mentor, but they might not be. It might be your boss, but you need someone who's going to go to meetings and say, Lisa is the one we need to promote this time. She's done X, Y, and Z, and those are really important, and it's her turn, or she should get responsibility for this project. So that's what an advocate or supporter does inside your company or at a board where they're thinking about, you know, hiring you into that board. And in my case, for example, I think one of the best things people can do for their career is to build a personal board of directors. It can be additive to a mentor or it could be instead. And it's probably best described as a half dozen or so experts available to offer input and advice. So you think about it just as big organizations benefit from the skill sets and experiences of a diverse pool of experts on their corporate boards. So does your career. So as I said, supporters inside your organization provide one type of social capital, but you also need ideas and support from people outside your firm, ideally with varied backgrounds and at different stages in their career, maybe people older. I, on my board of directors, I've got a much younger person who's great at narrative storytelling and comms, who gives me new insights and new knowledge. And um, seeking this range of insights is a proven way to what has been called function smarter, Uh, There's a science writer, Annie Murphy-Paul, who says it's called cognitive diversity. Um, She writes the power of thinking outside your brain. So I think those are important things to remember. Great to have a mentor if you can form one over time. Definitely need a sponsor or advocate at work. And a great idea is to start building a personal board of directors. As soon as we get off the call, I'm going to start thinking about who will be on my personal board. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the podcast. How great was Eliza? 
If you're thinking of putting any of those ideas into action, make sure you tag us at Women's Health AUS as we'd love to see how you go. This episode of Uninterrupted was hosted and produced by me, Lisa Gebelagen, with additional sound editing by Abby Williams. For more from us, pick up a copy of the latest issue of Women's Health with Rachel Finch on the cover. Find it on newsstands or online via Zinio and Apple News Plus and visit us at womenshealth.com.au. Until next time.